You know, I'm sure that most of us have a story about a time when we came up against the long wait that's involved in bureaucracy. It might have been at the DMV. Are you supposed to mention the DMV on a Sunday morning? I don't know. It might have been when you were waiting to vote, uh, applying for subsidies, or even after a loved one passed and, and the will was in probate and all that stuff. The hoops that you have to jump through, the paperwork that you have to just kind of file and walk through, the, the technicalities that you have to be aware of, it can all be incredibly overwhelming. Incredibly overwhelming. I'm sure that some might underline that that is exactly part of the design process in order to keep out the frauds and those who are disingenuous from taking advantage of the system. They want you to go through the rigmarole of a process to help kind of cull those away. And while that might be true, it's still frustrating. In fact, just about every time I have sat down among a, a group of veterans, this particular topic of government bureaucracy has come up. It seems like they have especially had a tussle um, with Veterans Affairs at some point. Those of you who serve know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. The common term that this long, drawn-out, bureaucratic process is called red tape. We all know what red tape is. We've come up against it when purchasing a house or even working through health insurance issues. But recently, I found out why it's called red tape. It has its roots in European government, but it, uh, even earlier than this, but in America at least, the term goes back to just after the Civil War, uh, when our country and the troops were returning home, many of them were awaiting unpaid wages and benefits that they had been promised upon their enlistment into the army. In the infancy stages of, of our country's first attempt at like the Veterans Affairs Office, Civil War veterans actually had to travel all the way to Washington, D.C. No matter where they were from, they had to travel to D.C. where they would have their physical records there. It was kept in order. Uh, and in order for them to receive any of their promised benefits, they would have to first go through the filing system and they would have to prove who they were and in what regiment they served. Those documents, their personal files, were especially noted as those who served in Civil War time. They were strapped with a red ribbon. And when you could finally prove who you were and in what regiment you served, the red tape was clipped, and you could then begin receiving your benefits. Can you imagine? You lived in Mississippi, having to travel all the way to D.C. In the 1800s, having to prove who you were, what regiment, all that stuff, in order just to get what you had been promised. Well, red tape today, it's more of a generic term. We see it in almost every aspect of life, from employment opportunities to filing taxes to getting building permits. But as we open the book of Ezra this morning, we find that the Jews themselves are involved in a similar building project, and you're going to find that the idea behind bureaucratic red tape is so much older than the Civil War, and it's not just isolated to the states. Over a decade earlier, the Jews had been released from captivity, and they'd been allowed to go back home to Judah. Cyrus was the king of the time. He was the Babylonian king. He had granted them their liberty. And he had commissioned them with rebuilding the temple of their God in Jerusalem. Honestly, it seems like Cyrus was kind of just hedging his bets. 
well, we'll have this temple to this God and this temple to this God and this temple to this God. And all of y'all pray to your individual gods that the Lord will prosper me and that way I'll hedge my bets. All the gods will be covered. He wanted success and he was not above asking any people to pray to any God so that he could get good for himself. And so he released several other people groups to do similar things to build their own temples at this time. And while he probably, well, we know for certainty that he didn't have the right theology there, the Lord obviously used his decree, his decree to the Lord's people's advantage. The Lord frees them, and even having, uh, we're told that they would be given building supplies paid for by the kingdom to build the temple of God. Well, as soon as the Jews returned to the rubble of Jerusalem, they rose up and they built. I'm just kind of going over the last few chapters we've studied the last few weeks. They set up the altar among the ruins of the temple and they began sacrificing. Day one, they reestablished worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem once again. They didn't stop there though. After a season of celebration, they, they rode the momentum and they began to build the temple itself, heaping huge stones to be laid down as the foundation. And that's where it all came to a screeching halt. Their neighbors, the surrounding city-states, they weren't happy of the efforts of the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem was once a mighty fortress, and if it was rebuilt, well, that means that some of them might be in danger or overthrown by them. So the enemies of God's people applied the pressure. They tried to get them to compromise, and when that didn't work, they started to all the intimidation tactics. Their armies would surround them just with an eye shot, and the Jews were there trying to build the temple, and obviously discouraged because they're looking over their shoulder and they're seeing armies there. It worked. The people of God stopped doing what they knew the Lord had called them to do because of the oppression and pressure of those surrounding them. They stopped building the temple. For a decade, the side of God's temple lay in ruins. The shell of a construction site that once was. Last week, we looked at two men named Haggai and Zechariah. They're prophets of God. They step onto the scene and they inspire the Jews to once again pick up block, pick up trowel, and begin to build the temple of God once more. The way it's written in our text seems to indicate that they are building in a fury, hurrying to make up for the wasted years of disobeying the Lord. And when all of a sudden, we're introduced to a couple of new characters who ride on the scene. We read it already, but look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 3. At the same time, while they're building, again, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shathar Bosnai, I'll probably pronounce that five different ways by the end of the day, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish the wall. What do you think you're doing? If you've ever worked on a construction site or been involved in building a home, you know that there's a guy that you do not want to tick off, and that is the building inspector. The codes man. In all reality, Tetanai is so much more than just a, a, a code inspector, a site inspector. He's described as the governor of this region. But in this capacity, he and his secretary, Shathar Bosnai, told you, that's pronunciation eight, whatever we're on. They're essentially playing these roles. Show us the paperwork. 
Who told you you could build here? In fact, in the Aramaic language of the text, it even suggests that they are officially called the king's eyes. They have been, by the Persian king Darius, deemed his eyes in this region, making sure that everything in Persia's colonies are legit, done correctly. You see, during the season of the Jews not building, a lot has transpired in the kingdom of Persia. Namely, Cyrus, the one who had let them go and first commissioned them to go build the temple, he's died. He is no more. All that's left of him is a room filled with all of his documents. You know Darius. He's the one of Daniel's, Daniel in the lion's den fame. Daniel steps, excuse me, Darius steps on the, on the scene. He's come to power. And they don't know anything about the Jews building a temple in Jerusalem. The temple's construction site had gone inactive. Essentially, their code had gone defunct. So long had they not built that these newly appointed government officials actually have no file, no folder on the job. Essentially, the Jews' building permit is lapsed due to inactivity and all the files have been lost. So when Tatanai gets word that there's major activity in the ruins of Jerusalem, he has to do his due diligence and check it out. Who's commanded you to build this wall? The way it's written in the text seems to suggest that the Jews who are working on the site, they answer him, but they do so without ever really stopping. It's like they're laying brick and they're just counting down the names of the people that's already been recorded in the previous chapters of Ezra. Verse 4, then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. What would the Jews do now when they come up against this, this new resistance of government bureaucracy, government red tape? A few years ago, they had buckled under the slightest pressure applied to them and they had ceased from their work for God. Now they're, they're being visited by the governor of the region, real power here. He's asking them, who's responsible here? Who told you that you can build here? I want names. What will the people of God do? Will they fold? Or will they continue to build? For the better part of two chapters, all we have in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 is we have the recorded correspondence sent between Governor Tatanai and King Darius asking for him to verify whether or not this group of people should actually be building in this particular site. These letters between the two, they have taken months to get to their destination. It's true, Darius and the Persians had one of the best mail routes in history, but the distance between Jerusalem and Darius's palace in Persia, it, it's upwards of 960 miles away. So we're looking at months between letter writing, correspondence, back and forth. There's no telling how long Tatanai's letter took to get to Darius and then to get a reply. What do the Jews do in the meantime? Do they stop building? Do they wait on the all clear? From Persia? That would have definitely been the tactic that I would have espoused. I am a rule follower big time. I do not understand you people who do not go by the rules. The rules are there for a reason. If everybody went by the rules, life would just go better. Some of you, you are not that person. 
ask forgiveness instead of permission types. They continue to build, the Jews do. And for very good reason. Ezra chapter 5, verse 5 tells us that reason. While they may be under the scrutiny of Governor Tatani, the king's eyes, the Persian king's eyes, they are actually under a much bigger microscope than Persia's. Verse 5 tells us, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could, make, they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. I want to camp out for a few minutes this morning on this phrase. The eye of their God was upon them. Let me be very transparent this morning. I was wading through some of the major historical parts of Ezra chapter 5 and 6, and I got weighted down this week in study. I mean, the thing that kept coming back to me is how in the world can I preach from official government letters sent from a governor to a king about building permits? How is this possible to preach the whole counsel of God from this text? And as the week progressed, I got pretty discouraged with these chapters. I, I read and reread them, kind of trying to mine them for some kind of truth that I could glean. Obviously, God's at work in the story. You can see how the Lord is sovereignly in control of the whole effort, even down to allowing Darius' scribes to find the original scroll that had been left by Cyrus and the, all the way back in the back of his library. You can read all about how God moved in the hearts of ungodly men to actually fund and provide for the building of his work. All that's encouraging, but it's nothing really new from what we've looked at over the past several weeks. And I'm being honest here, when I was at my lowest point, kind of just chalking this morning's sermon up to a glorified history lecture, which I hate doing, I reread the phrase, the eye of their God was upon them, and it struck me in a different way. You need to hear that the eye of the Lord is upon you this morning. What's funny to me is how simple that thought is that just strikes the Jews in Ezra chapter 5. It's not like he wasn't looking in Ezra chapter 4 when they stopped building. Yet this is what they claim now to continue to build because the eye of God was upon them. A decade earlier, they stopped. God wasn't looking away then. God hasn't changed. He sees it all. But the simple thought that God's eyes are upon them encourages the Lord's people to remain obedient to them. I want you to hear me on this. God sees you. I hope that hits you this morning. God sees you. And I hope you find yourself just like me Understanding that that is both an alarming and a comforting statement. God sees me is alarming. When no one else sees me, when I don't even see the sin of my own life, God sees. But it's also comforting that when I'm alone and the slew of despond thinking no one cares, 
and I'm hurting and I can't unburden myself, God sees me. Do you remember the little kids song that we used to sing in Sunday school? Oh, be careful little feet where you go. I'm not going to sing a special this morning. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little hands what you do. I never cared for what the end said. The Father up above is looking down in love. I heard that. I didn't hear that though. All I heard as a kid, again, very rule-oriented kid, was he's looking down on you. He's looking down above, or the Father up above is looking down on love. I think they just tacked on in love because it rhymes with above kind of thing. That song scared me to death as a kid. When was the last time you had that feeling of someone watching you? No, thank you. Hard pass. But that doesn't change the theological truth of that little song. He is looking. He does see you. His eye is upon you. That is a warning. It's a warning. Read it for what it is. It's not an accident that the long list of kings and queens of Israel and Judah, it's recorded of each of them, blank did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or blank did right in the sight of the Lord. God sees, and with His seeing, there is a determination. There is a judgment. He sees and judges. It's a warning, but it's also comforting. Again, that little kid song ends, the Father up above is looking down in love. As much as I didn't care about it as a kid, I sure do now. It's Hagar who really experiences this in the Bible, isn't it? It's Hagar. Her story is really one of the saddest in Scripture. It comes to us in the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. She was an Egyptian who was sold into slavery when Abram's caravan came riding through Egypt one time. She had no will of her own. She was a slave. Someone to be bought and bartered for. A slave. She was forced, I want to be careful here, but she was forced to lay with her 86-year-old master and when she got pregnant, her master's wife, Sarai, bitterly treated her like trash. So Hagar ran away. But there was nowhere for her to go. How long would she last out in the desert wilderness by herself? And it's there by a well where Hagar, it seems the way it's written in the text, is kind of at her wit's end, has nowhere else to go that the Lord shows Himself to her and He beckons to her to go back to where she could be with the people where she could survive. As Hagar got up and obeyed God in the desert wilderness, she called out to God, naming Him El Roy, which means, excuse my King James, Thou God sees me. You see me, God. God sees you too. 
The God of the Bible is alive and well. He's active in our lives. These are not just stories on a page. These are accounts of a living God written down by holy men of old, handed down from one generation to the next so that it ultimately comes to you today to convince you of this truth that the eyes of the Lord are upon you. He sees you. Don't read into this just some genteel, cute, devotional thought, chicken soup for the troubled soul. God sees me and He affirms me. He affirms all my choices. I kind of see God as just a a, a good old man up in a rocking chair throne room who just kind of nods and winks at me and I got you. You're my kid. You're fine. Don't see that. I go back to the thought of warning and comfort. God sees me. Praise God, my case is known by the King of the universe. He sees me. How alarming to think that there is nowhere for me to hide from Him. In fact, you really see the scriptural concept in 2 Chronicles 16. We don't have time to get into this story either, but we're introduced to a king of Judah named Asa. Asa is a cunning man. He makes brilliant political moves. He builds an alliance between Judah and Syria that would, for the most part, set up his people's security for generations on end. But the only problem was was that God had previously told him, do not set up treaties between you and Syria. To the world, it was a move of political genius. Asa saw a threat, strategically moved things to his advantage and safety. God saw the same problem and wanted to do a miracle through his people, but since Asa took matters into his own hands, God would not reward Asa's disobedience. So the Lord sent a seer by the name of Hanani to Asa, and Hanani reminds King Asa of some time ago when he went out to fight a literal million-man army from Ethiopia. Judah was nowhere near that big, so Asa cried out to God in that story in 2 Chronicles 14.11. Asa, in his weakness, said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help against this army of a million Ethiopians. Whether with many of those or with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. God heard Asa's cry, and he miraculously helped the tiny army of Judah to set the million-man army of Ethiopia on the run. And Hananiah is standing before Asa that day, and he says, Asa, don't you remember how the Lord helped you way back then? Why do you think that you should go against him now and disobey him and make these political movements? Don't you remember how God helped you? And then Hanani affirms this thought. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, he says to Asa, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God sees, knows, and shows himself strong to those who are loyal to him. That strength of God in your corner, it's not just for anyone and everyone, it's for those who are loyal to the Lord. And Asa wasn't loyal. 
He was disobedient. So in punishment, God swore that Asa would never see peace again. And as his story plays out through the rest of 2 Chronicles 16, Asa violently dies at war with God, refusing to even look to God for the smallest thing. The Jews of Ezra 5, they had learned that lesson well. God sees us. He sees me. What a comfort. What a warning. So they continued to build. Even when the red tape was being stretched across their construction site, they built. Even though the Persian king's eyes were upon them, the eyes of their God was upon them. And that meant a lot more to them. In our world of privacy and history deleting and seclusion and anonymity, we need a healthy dose of God sees. And in our world of discouragement and lack of acknowledgement and longing, longing for meaningful relationships, we need another healthy dose of God sees. Both the warning and the comfort. God sees how you maneuver every situation to your advantage. He sees your love of accolades and wanting to be noticed. God sees the selfishness and arrogance and love of money. He sees the one-upmanship and the blind eye you turn to the downtrodden. He sees the hypocrisy. He sees the judgment. He sees the lack of empathy and lack of love for those created in his image for whom he died. He sees the divisiveness and the gossip and the slander. He sees the drunkenness and the vanity and the not-so innocent looks God sees but God also sees you behind the scenes preparing the funeral meal studying for the lesson praying for your children practicing the instrument writing those cards of encouragement seeking wisdom singing your heart out in the car crying your eyes out as you beg for answers and god sees you for who you really are in spite of public opinion or the approval of man or the lack of thankfulness god sees he sees your longing for a more intimate relationship with him. He sees the restlessness in your heart. He sees the longing for something more. He sees the loneliness, the despair, the frustration, the hatred that you keep getting stuck in that same old besetting sin that you wish you could leave in the dust behind you. God sees. And that is comfort. So when the Jews come up against Darius's rulers, the king's eyes, they really don't care what the correspondence between he and the governor says. They're going to keep on building because the eye of God is upon them. You know, there's a lot to that. Those faithful to God will do what is right no matter who is watching or not watching. I'm going to say that again. Those faithful to God will do what is right no matter who is watching or not watching. God sees. It just so happens to turn out, though, in the providence of God, that Darius finds the original scroll of Cyrus's decree. He affirms that the Jews were in fact supposed to be building in this site. 
that Persian taxes were actually supposed to pay for the rebuilding of the temple and that no one had better lay a hand against the Jews as they built. In fact, I won't read it because it's pretty gruesome, but he essentially says, if you go up against the Jews, I will pull out a pole from your house, plant it in your front yard, and I will plant you on the pole. Back off, the Jews. Ezra chapter 6, verse 14 tells us, that the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the, through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and finished the temple according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Let me do some biblical math for you because sometimes it's difficult to decipher what month this is in our terminology. When it all comes down to it, 21 years. It took them 21 years to build the temple of God. They laid the foundation, took a break for years and ultimately, when it's all said and done, 21 years. That is three times as long as it took to build the original temple that Solomon had built. If you compared it even more to Solomon's temple, it gets even more depressing. Haggai does a similar thing in his prophecy. Solomon sacrificed a mind-boggling 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep at his coronation of the temple. This, I mean, massive slaughter of animals, massive sacrifice, saying, all this is for you, God. 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. Verse 17 of Ezra 6 tells us that they could barely afford even a percentage point of that. Nonetheless, there is one word that permeates all others in this text, and that is the word joy. Joy. Joy pops up in Ezra chapter 6 multiple times. Look at verse 22. This is jumping way ahead. But they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. The Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Joy. In spite of the resistance, in spite of the oppression, in spite of the halting start and stop, the building of the temple of God ends with great Joy. I wish I wish I could end with some moving powerful story that might drive all this home and make it relevant to your personal situation about someone who persevered through a difficult time and ultimately saw something happen that was bigger than themselves but I'll just leave it at this those stories are still being written. 
We've got a 98-year-old saint. She's just recently gone through surgery and all of that. And before she went in, a couple of days before, she just quoted the old song that we sing here. We sang here a couple of weeks ago. I've gone too far to turn back. Becca, it won't be on the screen. I apologize. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul, who knew a thing about suffering, but also knew a few things about great joy, he wrote, Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It gets really wordy, but it's really good. Read on verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In one small way, the people of God in Ezra chapter 5 and 6, they went through all of it, the oppression and the resistance and all of the pressure from people outside and even in their own ranks, and they built, they obeyed God, and they received joy from it. Stephen Davey wrote it this way. Joy, joy is not necessarily easy, but it waits for you at the end of the long road called obedience. We're going to keep that on the screen because you need to write that in your Bible. <laughs> Joy is not necessarily easy, but it waits for you at the end of the long road called obedience. You want joy? Obey. Build. Do what God has called you to do. You've got that emptiness, that aching in your life. You've got that lack of joy. The Lord is standing in your life today, and He is telling you, obey me. Obey. And at the end of it all, when the temple being there, the sacrifice for sin, and I could go all into that when they offered up 12 lambs as an offering for their sin in Ezra chapter 6. They received true joy because they did what God called them to do. This is a quote that's worthy of you writing down in your Bibles, but it is more so than that. It is worthy of you living by until Joy is revealed in your life.
while you're going through, while you're working, building the brick, brick upon brick, obeying the Lord, doing what you're called to do, behind the scenes in front of everybody, whatever it might be, please hear me. God sees you. You are known by the Almighty Creator, God of the universe, who more than sees you, He loves you, He sent His Son to die for you so that you could have true joy. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.